0: There are a lot of subtitles I could try to insert here to describe her from a three-time cancer survivor to a successful hedge fund marketer, but they really don't capture her full spirit, not in the least. I had first heard about Amanda several years ago because we have a lot of friends in common in New York and also the hedge fund community, but it was during her period of getting chemotherapy that I first heard about Amanda And what was amazing were the descriptions that people would go through. I think normally when you hear about someone going through chemo, your spirit is deflated for them because you hear about their illness and going through such a tough treatment. But Amanda's chemo stories were downright uplifting because I had heard about a woman who would host these lively chemo parties with her friends and family where they would dress up in various chick themes, uh, including chick flicks like Clueless or Dixie chicks or superhero chicks, where the group would dress up as wonder woman. I mean, it was so cheerful and inspiring. And I remember it gave me such a spring in my stop whenever I would hear about them, because I would hear about this woman going through cancer treatment and getting chemo and somehow staying so positive, not only for herself, but for her friends and her family. I mean, it was really incredible in this episode. Amanda and I start the conversation about where she grew up. And then we quickly got to her attraction to finance and business. Today, she's a director of investor relations and business development at a hedge fund based in New York. And while juggling this high octane career full time, Amanda was diagnosed multiple times with breast cancer and skin cancer. And during that time, she had to face the challenges of fertility in between all the cancer scares. And she learned that there are a lot more challenges to face outside of the hospital when her insurance claims were denied when she was trying to preserve her fertility options and freeze her eggs. So in typical Amanda fashion, she decides to help others and three years ago created a nonprofit called Chick Mission. This organization helps women to understand fertility preservations and also find financial aid during this stressful time period. We also discuss Amanda's multiple-year journey with cancer education and treatment, from the checkups and the biopsies and the quest for the right doctors and all the questions that you have to go through. And all the while, she remained such a pillar of strength for her friends and her family through this incredibly stressful time. Very few people will change the world, but Amanda Rice has changed the world for many people. And that includes baby Liam, who was the first chick mission baby born with her incredible efforts. Amanda Rice is one chick I am thrilled to know and very grateful as well. I hope you enjoy this conversation with her. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so, so much for joining. I'm very glad to be here. Amanda, the listeners heard in advance the background of all of your accolades and all the things you've done. And in three short years, you have created and grown a spectacular nonprofit that every one of my friends in New York has told me about and given me a summary about. I mean, it's fantastic. It's called Chick Mission, and it helps women with cancer, which I definitely want to dive deeper into. But first, I know my listeners really, really enjoy hearing about where people came from and their backgrounds. Before we talk more about Chick Mission, as well as your other full-time job of leading the business development efforts at a hedge fund, can you share with our listeners where you grew up? I
1: grew up not too far from New York City in White Plains, New York. I was a kid who liked to ride or bike all over town, had a ton of friends, and just had a pretty normal, you know, went to public high school, and really just wanted to be a kid, explore, and I was born a
0: saleswoman, so always selling something. We'll get into the hedge fund job in a few moments, but what college did you end up choosing and how did you come up with that decision? I decided I wanted a campus life, but in a city that narrowed it down quite a
1: bit. And I was always paving my way. I was definitely a leader at a young age. And when I went to kind of do that search, I came up with really two that I wanted to go visit. One was Boston College. The other was Tulane. And my dad took me on a trip. And it was the first quarter of the year, probably February or March and being the 17-year-old kid that I was. Snow on the ground in Boston and beautiful sunny skies and 70 degrees in New Orleans. And the decision really was made for me. So that was sort of it.
0: You'd mentioned that you were kind of born a saleswoman. In college, did you then go more of the business route or what was your major? Decided I wanted to go into undergrad business. That was also one of the determining
1: factors for the schools that I looked at. And then from day one. It was just what type of business I wanted to study. And I thought, pretty practical person. So no matter what, I would either be able to balance my checkbook, do my taxes, or not be a dummy when I go to meet with my financial advisor. So I thought it was a good skill set to have later.
0: Good. And so what was your first job out of college?
1: It was 1999, and I ended up at an investment bank that no longer exists due to many mergers called Hambrick and Quist. So San Francisco based but a big New York office, and for those that are in our business in their 40s, 50s, 60s, they'll know it really well. It was the tech and healthcare investment bank, and I started as the grunt working for the head of the New York
0: office. So how did you feel? I mean, it's 100, 120 hours a week. You were doing spreadsheet editing till four in the morning. (laughs) How did you like it? And how long were you a banker for? Oh, I loved it. I was jack of all trades. Literally my first week of work,
1: I opened 1,600 new accounts by hand because we were doing the lifeminders.com IPO. So it was friends and family. I was running paper tickets, but I raised my hand for every project. I actually, my my boss, he ran the New York office, but he also had a private wealth business. And so I had my hands in that. I picked up the phone. I, whatever they wanted me to do, I raised my hand because I wanted to make money. And living in New York is not cheap, especially when you're 22 and really are starting out at the bottom rungs.
0: And so how long were you doing that for?
1: The company got acquired by Chase. Then Chase and J.P. Morgan merged. Then they moved our whole team into the J.P. Morgan private bank. So I was really working for the same team for, I want to say, five or six years. Because eventually, it was a culture clash between the H&Q people and J.P. Morgan private bank. So eventually, we were grandfathered in under our commission schedule, payment structure, and then two years and one day later, we all quit and went to Merrill Lynch.
0: What was your role at Merrill then? Was it more on the sales side or client-facing side? Yeah.
1: Client-facing, I mean, we, we were trying to drum up new business, whether it was from small businesses or ultra-high net worth individuals and really give them advice on asset allocation. I got exposed to alternatives at that point. I was like, huh, what's that all about? What's a hedge fund? And so that piqued my interest and slowly but surely I said, I'm the low man on the totem pole with young guys in charge who are not going anywhere. And I had
0: goals and aspirations. For those that know both of us, that's where we met in the New York hedge fund circuit, if you (laughs) call it that. And so what did you think about switching over kind of to the hedge fund side? Did you instantly like it? It sounds like you liked alternative investments, but let's talk more about that transition first. It was a great experience. I really loved learning about it. There was no
1: pressure on me. I didn't come with a Rolodex. They didn't expect me to raise millions of dollars at that point, but I just got to know the client base and learn what the investors wanted and really help build a investor relations department there. It was cool. And was that the hedge fund you're at now? No. It was one that had been around for decades, actually. Never did any form of marketing because back then it was sort of hush-hush, word of mouth. And I was there for almost nine years. It was great. I loved the team there. The culture was really what kept me there for a long time. And and then I, I made a move. And where did you move to? Today, I work at Maltese Capital. I started there in early 16. And my old firm there, actually, we lost our founder in 2014. And it was a huge shift in the way that the firm was managed and just kind of the everyday feel. And unfortunately, I had really bad timing. The day before his funeral, I got diagnosed for the first time with breast cancer. So that sucked. It was just an emotionally draining time for everybody. We had just lost Alex. He was sort of the lifeblood. I was also part of the rah-rah. Everything's great. We're going to do better. I want to bring everyone together.
0: And it just was. It was a blow. So this is the first time you mentioned breast cancer. How old were you when you were first diagnosed? So right after my 37th birthday,
1: I noticed a weird symptom. It wasn't your traditional lump that everyone talks about. So that's why I love when the posts on Instagram and Facebook talk about all the other signs and symptoms. And mine was just one of those things that was gross. I had a little nipple discharge on my left breast, and I hadn't had children. So anything asymmetric, shape, size, texture, liquid. It wasn't a lot. It was just weird and gross. And I, vanity took over and that's why I got it checked out. Was
0: it recurring? Was it just not one, two days, but it was constant enough that you decided to go in and get it checked? It
1: was. I was on vacation when I noticed it and I was in a bikini and like the lining was white. So I noticed it then. And then I remember kind of piecing it back when I was wearing a nude bra, I'd notice it, but I just thought I was clumsy and klutzy, and I always have ragged heads, ends to my nails, so thought I just cut myself, and then it just sort of happened a few times. That's what led me to go to the OBG. So this OBGYN is no longer my OBGYN. <laughs> Part of it was because she was a bit dismissive about my symptom, told me breasts are funny, I'm getting older. And when I pressed a little bit, she's like, well, I could write you a prescription for a mammogram, but you're 37, no family history. And so that always kind of sits in the back of my mind. And I haven't gone back. This is where I'm not being true to myself, but I've got a couple of those situations with doctors, actually three. So this is a lesson for everyone. I have not gone back to her to tell her to stop dismissing patients. I did take the mammogram prescription. I did call and get a mammogram. As you know all too well, when you're busy at our job and every other job out there, you don't necessarily put your health appointments first. And I luckily did. So when I went to get the mammogram, just kept coming back abnormal, 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 abnormal. They did a lot more testing. And finally, the day before Alex's funeral – they came back. They had to do a surgical excision to get to like the true cancer cells. And I just want to stop and say that if a doctor tells you it doesn't run in your family and you're being silly and you're getting older, trust your instincts and your gut because you know your body. Your body is incredibly efficient and your body tries to tell you things. So I'm not an alarmist in any way. And if you are, that's okay. But I just think You need to be your own advocate. People say that all the time, but you truly have to stop and say that I have one life and I need to get my body checked out and I have to get my regular checks. And for the record, hereditary breast cancer is 10 to 15% of breast cancer cases. So that means 85 to 90% of breast cancer is not hereditary, as far as we know. I'm sure lots and lots of studies and you know, all the genetic testing will, will prove otherwise in the future, but 1 in 8 get breast cancer. There's some weird parallels with cancer and fertility. 1 in 8 deal with infertility, 1 in 8
0: get breast cancer. What was the time frame of when you started getting the discharge and then you went to the doctor, but from that to getting confirmed that you were diagnosed with breast cancer? took about
1: seven weeks. Seven eight weeks. First, you go in for your OBG. Then you make time to get a mammogram. Then you get a sonogram of my breasts. Then I got a biopsy, two biopsies, and then two MRI guided biopsies. And then finally, they did a surgical excision, and that's how they found it. But it's really trial and error, and doctors I have a lot of respect for, but medicine is a lot of figuring out what it's not. And that's okay. I mean, that's they're fantastic at what they do, but it's just I was under the impression that doctors know everything and they study their asses off. But it's important to understand that right now that they're just really trying their best and they're humans too.
0: What was your reaction when you first it was confirmed that you had cancer? First of all, what stage was it, and what were your thoughts going through it?
1: It was an interesting case because of the the nipple discharge. There was no tumor to test and grade and see the cells. Are they fast growing or modestly growing or very low, slow growing? And then they study what types of cells they are. So they originally found atypical ductal hyperplasia, so ADH. So that is pre-precancer. So that's negative one cancer. Basically, just saying like there's some funky things happening with your ducts, and then on the other side, on the left side, they found DCIS all over the breast. So that's ductal carcinoma in situ, which is stage zero breast cancer. Which one had the discharge? Left Left had the discharge, so that was DCIS. The right didn't have any discharge, and even during the mammo, and not to get too too graphic, but when they did the mammo on the left breast, there was a pool of liquid on the ground. And the tech there, I will never, ever, ever be able to thank her enough. You're in that little vice. I almost passed out to the floor, but I was my breast was stuck in the vice. It was just, oh my gosh, so overwhelming. And she just held me up and that was just insane. So I knew, I knew, obviously when you have a pool of liquid coming out of your left breast and you're a small person, you're like, wait, what's going on here? But it ended up, when they did the surgical excision, and this is the all the other thing that is kind of bizarre about breast cancer, they don't know how extensive it is until they do the lumpectomy when you do have a lump or a mastectomy. So mastectomies, you choose, I had this kind of negative one cancer in the right breast, and then I had stage zero confirmed in the left breast. And so I opted really for vanity purposes, to have a bilateral mastectomy so that I could do implants in both breasts and ultimately figure out what else was buried in that breast tissue. And I'm glad that I did that because when they do the mastectomy, they, they look at your nodes. You know, you have these specific sentinel nodes that they get to doing the mastectomy, and then they're able to test them. And the importance of your lymph nodes is to see – Has the cancer spread anywhere? And that determines kind of what stage you are. If it's spread through your lymphatic system, that means it could have ended up, some of those stray cells could end up somewhere else in your body. So that makes it much more serious. And when I did mine, they came back with some cells that were stage one. And they also I had one, did I have one or two? I can't even remember, which is frightening. But one or two of those, I think it was one, uh, was positive. And so what they do at that point, because that's kind of buried in, in your chest cavity, they test a sort of underneath your armpit almost, there's a pad of of a ton of lymph nodes. So that's kind of what they do in the next phase. They'll go in there, they will test, they'll take this little pad of fatty tissue out They'll test all of those lymph nodes. You never know how many you're going to have there. And then they determine whether it's spread from there. So it could leave your sentinel node and then maybe never leave the other nodes. So luckily, I think it was zero for 21. And there was a lot of opinions on what to do with that. Because when you have stage one with a positive node, a lot of institutions want to do chemo right away. This is where I stop and say sorry for all the nitty-gritty detail, but I like to be super factual because I've studied this. I've been through it numerous times, and I just want people to get comfortable with the language.
0: No, I think it's helpful, and it's informative, and I think people would be interested. I don't know much about it, and I'm fascinated by it. So you're 37. Thankfully, you caught it early, and it sounds like it was treatable, but there's more to that story. So how did that progress? I got differing opinions
1: from institutions, and I live in New York. It's filled with amazing doctors and scientists, so lucky me. And then I'm a squeaky wheel, so I used every person that I knew to give me recommendations. And my husband at the time and I were researching and asking friends and finally got an appointment with one of the, the most notoriously incredible breast cancer oncologists, Dr. Larry Norton, and he is, I mean, he's a legend. So I was very fortunate to get that appointment, and he had a differing opinion from the other institution. So he said, I think because you had four different biopsies that one of the straight cancer cells was pushed into your lymph node. And so instead of recommending ACT chemo, I'm going to basically say, (laughs) you had already done the mastectomy, which that was great at the other institution, and I'm going to put you on long-term hormone suppression therapy, which is called tamoxifen. And at the time, he said, well, there was just a new study that came out that instead of five years of tamoxifen, I'm going to put you on 10 years of tamoxifen because it's better and they run your whole scores, and he's very mathematical, and that was going to be it. He did, at one of my first appointments, say, aesthetically, great job with your mastectomy and reconstruction, but I'm a little nervous. If I had to sort of give you all of my comments, one was they left a little too much residual breast tissue behind. So he sort of showed me, because every time you go in to see, even though you get a mastectomy, you're still going to have a breast exam. You're still going to have scans. And he still wanted me to do my breast exam, which I was doing very frequently. And he said, your breasts kind of go underneath your armpits. They go a little bit above where your bra is. So there was a little bit of concern there. But he said, okay, listen, first time around, you had this nipple discharge, second time – it would probably present like a tumor and this is what it would feel like. So frozen pea, a pebble, something that I always used to say I have kind of lumpy breasts and there's, depending upon where you are in your cycle, there are little things here and there that you feel that are not necessarily symmetric, but when you feel a tumor, you know it. It is hard. You cannot manipulate it. It's not a cyst. It is a tumor. It feels like a pebble. He put me on tamoxifen, and that was the plan. So put me on tamoxifen for 10 years. After a few years, I could pause and take a drug holiday, try to get pregnant. And so for me, that didn't sit well at age 37, married at the time, and not necessarily sure that my marriage was going to last. And also at the same time, wasn't quite sure if I was going to be a mom one day. So I decided to
0: pursue fertility preservation. How did you, during that process, think about your marriage then? It was really
1: hard because
0: I was struggling and so
1: was my ex-husband. And we had met young and we got married, and we moved out of the city to the suburbs, and the next step was family. And I was you know, super career-driven and put a pause on it, and then, then I got diagnosed with cancer. So a lot of things that we were dealing with, and there was just this – between both of us, I'm still friends with him. We are – Happily divorced, we say, because it's just something wasn't right. And again, you have to trust that gut instinct. And we wanted different things. And cancer was something that we could do together. And unfortunately, you don't want to keep doing that together. But we did for oof, almost four years. We're friends, like I said. And we fought it together. And he was there for my mother. And that will never, ever I'll never ever ever be able to thank him enough.
0: What do you mean he was there for your mother? So when you're diagnosed,
1: you're the you're the baby and you get diagnosed with cancer and your mom is just the best has to deal with that every day and come to every appointment and he he was there for her. And that is something I'll never be able to thank him enough for. So Cancer affects everybody in your life. It affects your job. It affects your family. It affects your friends. They don't know what to do with it. A lot of them want to be there every step of the way, which is wonderful. Others don't even know what to say, so they disappear a little bit. And that hurts, but then you kind of get it later. So I think when you realize, we just wanted to have some time to be able to make our decisions about our life. And we didn't, unfortunately, have enough time to start making those decisions when we were in the thick of things. But I knew I wanted to have options. And I wanted to – he wasn't necessarily on board with the idea of me freezing my eggs. and. We still haven't had that conversation, and and that's that's okay. I think it was more of a, I don't want to get to the doctor's office and have someone ask me if we want eggs or embryos. I'm pretty sure that was it. So ultimately, it was a concurrent thing that happened. I was diagnosed, and then I was getting opinions and getting second opinions, and I met Dr. Norton. At the same time, I had looked into egg freezing. So I got some comfort there. I was 37 and probably going to get divorced. And so I decided to go for it. And even with tamoxifen, you 37, you, you have to go on it for three years. Then you can take a drug holiday for one year. So at the time, I'm like, wait a minute. I know so many people who have trouble conceiving. So you're telling me At age 40, so 37 plus 3 years, I can take one year to try and get pregnant and it'll miraculously happen in a marriage that's not going to last and then I have to go back on this medication, which is pregnancy category X, for another 7 years. So then I'll be 47 when I'm done with treatment. So that math didn't quite work for me. So I started pursuing that. And I did not have an IVF policy at the time. And I said, okay, I'm going to call my insurance company. Obviously, they were like, you have no IVF policy. So I said, okay, well, that's unfortunate. I can pay out of pocket. I'm very lucky. And so I did. And then later on, fast forward a few years later, I did have an IVF policy, yet they wouldn't honor it because I did not meet their definition of infertility what was their definition of infertility so you have to be trying to get pregnant for 6 months and if you can't get pregnant after 6 months you can come back and do iui which i'm not sure if people know what that is but it's you know more hormones in your body to try to make your body ready to get pregnant and at that time this was my third iteration of cancer, second with breast, and they, this time around, they wanted me to do chemotherapy. So at that point, trying to get my body pregnant, and this was at age 40, was not going to happen. I had 12 weeks of chemo that I was facing ahead of me, and so they used that
0: excuse to deny my coverage, which just made me insane. So in 2014, you survived, thankfully, very early screening of breast cancer. 2015, very early stages of melanoma. Then 2016, hopefully, is on the rise and cheerful, but it sounds like you got a third bout of cancer. Was it the following year, or when was that?
1: I had been diagnosed in 14 and went through treatment and surgery and everything else, and then they put me on tamoxifen for a few months, and then I one day came home from work and looked at my husband and told him that I was having suicidal thoughts. And I was just crying every day and waking up in the middle of the night with so much panic and anxiety. And we scheduled an appointment with the oncologist, and he took me off of the drug immediately.
0: Was that a known side effect?
1: I don't think it's very common, but it was so severe. And I am truly, I'm a glass half full, wake up in the morning and bounce and smile. And,
0: and you never had that feeling of severe depression before?
1: Never. I felt really guilty, actually, because I know a lot of people who have dealt with anxiety and depression in my life, and I just couldn't quite understand it until I felt it myself. And I felt a little shitty. But he said, we're taking you off immediately. We're putting you on an antidepressant. And within a few weeks, I was feeling better.
0: You still remain one of the most positive people that I've heard about through my network. When did you then get the third notification of cancer?
1: We were kind of holding our breath, still married, trying to figure out that, but also really trying to figure out when is the right time and should we have this serious conversation when we're already dealing with so many other serious things. Anyway, we were holding our breath. So 16, I transitioned jobs and was busy and out on the road and talking about my new firm and the strategy and planting seeds and doing all the things that I really love. And literally had gotten through the entire year. And I'm sitting on the couch. We had hosted Thanksgiving. We were exhausted because we hosted everyone, and I'm sitting on my couch that weekend after, tons of football, just kind of chilling out, doing my self-breast exam, and it was kind of early December, and I felt that freaking pebble that Dr. Norton had mentioned. So that was early December. Again, it's not just exact, oh, you feel a lump, you have cancer. It is You got to go in and see the breast surgeon again. So that was the breast surgeon at the old place. She dismissed me and said it was probably scar tissue. And I knew. Sometimes surgeons don't want to admit, maybe it is something. It's brutal. She was one of the first surgeons to do a nipple-sparing, skin-sparing mastectomy. And I had a tag team female surgeon duo that did my bilateral mastectomy reconstruction. So I just wanted it to be so good and perfect and cutting edge. And and it was, it is still an art form and not science. You need to leave enough skin and tissue behind for your skin not to develop necrosis. So it's, it's not exact. But again, dismissed by a doctor. And I said... OMG, she did a surgical excision of the spot. I won't bog you down with all the details. She missed it. I went to Sloan right after, and he's like, why didn't you call me? And I had to get another surgery. And from that day on, I did not go back to the other place. But he said, okay, now now you've got a tumor. Now we can work with this. We can do an Oncotype DX score. We can figure out, what the game plan is but you'll never know was it part of the original cancer or was this brand new you need to kind of throw everything at it and so unfortunately at that point I was still married this is the third cancer diagnosis this was early 2017 and I had surgery first week of January then a few weeks later And he said, sorry, this time around, we got to do chemo. And you should look in. You had raised this family concern, future family concern with me. You need to do another round of of egg freezing. And again, I I didn't want to bum out any of these doctors. They had gotten to know my ex-husband. So I didn't want to tell them my marriage is probably not going to last. I need to do probably one or two rounds and ended up luckily getting the the okay to do around at the time because I had moved firms I had an IVF policy so I said oh obviously it's going to be covered I'm 40 now I have cancer for the third time I've got to do chemotherapy radiation and then more drug therapy so of course I'll be covered and this is a thing that gets everyone they denied me again because I couldn't meet their definition of infertility. People will ask all the time sort of what the motivation behind Chick Mission was or is. It's feeling like the world is just so effed up and you're dealing with something so overwhelming and you're so helpless in a way. And then they talk about your future ability to be a mom. And that's just, crazy to me. Nobody should be able to dictate life-saving treatment that has these side effects. They should be covering your fertility preservation. And they just said no. And I really don't like that word. And I really, really don't like thinking about the other people that don't work in our industry that could not afford it. And I could, but I was furious about it. And I went on this long hike just trying to get my shit together I'd worked with the Young Survival Coalition, breast cancer research, supported the pink agenda. There's so many great groups out there. And finally said, this is what I need to focus on. The name Chick Mission came to me on, I think it was a 12 or 13 mile hike. And I could not, usually you'd be exhausted after that, but I came back running because I wanted to know if that domain name was taken. And it wasn't. So I it and I paid for everything. Chickmission.org.com. The Chick Mission.
0: 2017 seems to be quite a year because I think that's when I first heard about the legendary Amanda Rice, because I think that's when you started chemo. And in our network, we have a few mutual friends. And I would hear about this woman who would corral her friends and say, you know what, join me in my chemo treatment. Oh, and by the way, we're going to have some pretty fantastic outfits. Can you share with our listeners what that was about? Yes.
1: So once I came up with Chick Mission, I decided all the chemo treatments were going to be chick-themed. So we did one that was just kind of old McDonald chicks, like literally my cousin, Jamie Perot, all these people, my mom, my ex-husband, he dressed as a farmer, and we were all chicks. And it was hilarious. And that's where I met my amazing chemo nurse, Theory, who literally just came to our gala, which meant the world to me. So we decided to start with that. Then we did Dixie Chicks and had blow-up instruments and teased our hair real high. And those were with my college friends. And then we did Chick Flick. So it, it was Clueless. And that was with Anne and Lindsay. And it was just hilarious. And then we decided we were going to do Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman was awesome because it was our friend Jenny and her mom, who is just <laughs> amazingly crafty, made those outfits for us. It was so fun. It was just a way to make this scary experience fun and I like to host things.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you host a costume party at your chemo.
1: When you walk into treatment as someone in their 30s and early 40s, you're kind of like, wait, I don't have any people here. And all of your friends want to help. And you need to give them ways to help because they all want to help. They want Things are out of your control, but they're out of their control. And they don't have a lot of friends who have cancer. So you got to just figure it out. And I decided the third time around that I had been sharing what I had been going through with with a tight group and then a little bit of a looser group. And it's very important to me to, one, talk about having cancer and balancing life with that. And you got to share. You got to talk about it. Make it less of a of a moment for people. Let's stop whispering about women's issues whether it's fertility or cancer or leaky boobs, or it's just enough. I was unhappy in a marriage. Let's talk about all of this stuff. Let's start
0: talking about miscarriage. Let's stop. Let's just keep talking. So last month was the second annual Chick Mission Gala, and I saw pictures. I thought this was a celebrity-studded type of event where I would see all these celebrities and It was something that you just started three years ago. Can you talk about the evolution of Chick Mission and how much it's done in such a short time? It's so cool. It's honestly, people have embraced it. It gives them
1: something to do to support. It's very targeted. This is an issue that can be solved, and that's what makes me motivated every single day. And I do juggle a lot, but... Right now, today, I got an email from a young woman who just got diagnosed and my first question is where are you located? Because there have been states that have changed their laws to mandate that insurance companies start covering this. You do not choose to get cancer and life-saving treatment should not make your motherhood choices for you or your fatherhood choices for you. So the fact that we live in 2019 and there's been momentum is incredible. And so I said, where do you live and what's your diagnosis and what's your treatment plan? Every day I look at that particular email address. I have five. And that's sort of where I start. And then I say, okay, where are you in your process? We don't discriminate. We You're aged 18 to 40, and your adjusted gross income is below a certain amount. They're all need-based scholarships, but any kind of cancer, we're going to at least educate you on your options and send you somewhere that can help. If you don't meet our criteria, and we haven't quite been there yet, I mean, we are, as you mentioned, only a few years old. So we started in New York. And we onboarded some partners, fertility partners here. And then Illinois changed their law in 2018. They voted to do that. This was the fifth state. And between the time where it was passed and the time where it was going to go into effect was a number of months. So I called some local friends in Chicago and said, okay, I need some recommendations of great fertility practices that Treat patients very kindly and have great science and a great lab. And found a couple and said, okay, after the first annual gala, we had raised a lot of money. And I said, okay, we have X number of dollars to fund scholarships for you guys from now until your end. And they're like, who are you? What is going on? And I said, okay, I'll give you the skinny. This is the process. And they were delighted. So we helped some patients in Illinois. And then we kept our efforts up in New York and then expanded to New Jersey and have expanded to both California and we're working on Texas and New Hampshire. And part of the reason it's sort of a random array of states, but first and foremost, Connecticut and Rhode Island passed laws that went into effect in 2018 that mandated insurance companies start covering this for cancer patients and other serious illness. And then the following year, it was Maryland, Delaware, and Illinois. And this year, 2019, New York State, New Hampshire, and California have all passed laws that will go into effect Jan 1 of 2020. So there is a groundswell. This is happening.
0: Did you ever think oh, by the way, I also have a full-time job. I also have a lot of other personal things on my mind. Did you ever think, let's just focus on Chick Mission or let's just focus on your financial career? What were your thoughts in terms of juggling all the things you were juggling?
1: Closing the loop, I did end up getting divorced and moving back to New York City. So that was in 2018. So I was done with all the cancer treatment, finally felt like myself again. My ex-husband and I looked at each other one night and we're kind of like, I think it's time and he stayed in Connecticut and I moved back to the city right away and started this new life. So when you're 41 and don't have children and are starting out again I'm incredibly career-driven and I get a lot of personal satisfaction and joy from my day-to-day job. But building Chick Mission is just sort of filled some voids. And I, yeah, I think about would I give up one for the other, but ultimately they both feed me in different ways and I'm really happy kind of where I am, what I'm doing and when I moved back to the city, obviously I'm on my own and I'm thinking about dating and dating apps and I'm too old for this stuff. And anyway, so it was very easy. People will say, well, I've got this and this and this and my kids sports and all this stuff that's keeping you occupied. And my hobby slash baby is Chick Mission.
0: Only complete overachievers would say starting a nonprofit, raising millions of dollars would be a hobby, but okay, I'll (laughs) let you describe it as that. You are such an inspiring person for so many reasons. You have chemo and you make it a blast for your friends to support you and you stay so glass half full. That is just incredibly inspiring. Who or what inspires you? There's so many. I
1: take every day, I kind of look around, this is what cancer has taught me, that everybody, every single person is going through something. So whether it's the grumpy person on the train that budges you or steals your seat or doesn't get up for a pregnant woman or whatever, they've they've got their own stuff going on. So I've sort of taken this experience and I I try to kind of take little bits from everybody. I've got friends who inspire me every day, those that their nature is so – not my nature, and so my friend Dawn, who's just a doer, she sees everything and just can can get so much done. I have some best friends from growing up that are phenomenal moms and worker bees and everything. So there's just there's so many people that inspire me and changes all the time. And I think there's not. One person that is my kind of go-to, maybe Oprah, but (laughs) (laughs) I love strong women that take their life experience and try to help break down barriers or or do things. They, They inspire me.
0: I would not ever attribute anything of what you said to be a failure in any way, shape, or form. The idea of the show really came from Let's talk about being real. Let's talk about real life. Let's talk about mental health, depression, miscarriage, feeling ugly for the day, things like that, that are daily struggles and obstacles that we face, whether it's physical obstacles or mental obstacles. For you, I have to just, oh, I'm curious just to directly ask, what has been the most impactful or memorable failure that you've had? And you could define failure in however you want to loosely define it. But I'm curious because I don't I actually don't know if you would say the struggle was cancer. I actually think you would actually have a different answer. And I'm so curious what you'll say to this question.
1: There was a part of me that felt like my body failed me, but that was only early on in the experience with cancer. I ended up kind of coming full circle and recognizing that my body was the thing that saved my life. And so. That is awesome. I feel very, 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 very fortunate. So much gratitude. So it's certainly not that. I think is a great thing. But I think there's ultimately so much pressure that women put upon themselves to get married and start a family. And some of that is biological. But it's a lot of societal pressures. And I do not regret my decision to marry the first man that I loved. I do not regret it. But I do think you have to be honest. You have to find what makes you happy, you happy. It's not being honest with yourself. And and again, I'm here, I'm 42, I'm dating, I'm having fun, I have a new puppy. Life is really good. But I think those years of struggle just didn't have to be that way. I'm very glad that he was there for me during my experiences and there for my mom, but you have to figure out what makes you happy and what makes you satisfied and and more than that, what what inspires you every day. So, marriage is a lot of work, but a lot of work and stress and strain comes from trying to make something and force something to work when it probably wasn't supposed to
0: work. One thing you said I absolutely loved is your body saved your life. And I love this show so much because I I get to experience through conversation how enlightened so many people are because the conversation I've had, common theme is that so many of these people have had time to reflect of what they love, what they want, and what they want to continue to pursue. And so much of it is I finally got the strength to realize it's okay to love myself and to be myself and to not care what people think. When did you, at what moment did you realize it's okay to focus on me? It
1: takes almost your entire 20s, 30s to figure that out. And a lot of people had told me, when you turn 40, you have this moment. And it's this moment and you're gonna give zero fucks or you're you're gonna just not care anymore. And I think because of the health stuff, it probably visited me a little early. I think there's a direct correlation with being successful in your career and having that feeling. And I think every year that I get older and wiser, and wiser is the key, you just don't care about the things that you used to care about. And, and, A lot of people told me that, and as a youngster, I didn't really listen, but I get to make my own rules. I wake up every day, and I make decisions, and I try to choose decisions that make me happy, and I think that's just one of those things, like, stop. Nobody should tell you what you should wear or how tall you should be or what clothes you should – no. I make my own decisions. I literally went to get a physical two weeks ago. And I face the scale backwards. So I'm like, I know I'll feel, nothing's going to make me happy. It's just going to either, there's some way as women, we're going to find a way to pick on, on ourselves. So I, I refuse to let that into my being anymore. I'm over it. And if I need to take an antidepressant to figure out a way to get through something really difficult, I will. And if I have to, Now I'm in medically induced menopause. If I have to use a lubricant because otherwise sex might be painful, but yeah, I'm going to do it. I feel so empowered to be able to make these decisions and really not have strings attached anymore. I really wish I could kind of bottle this up and give it to my friends who are in their 20s and 30s, but I just keep kind of reiterating, okay, guys, you're going to get there. You're going to get there, I promise. And whether it's 37, 38, 39, 40, it's going to happen.
0: Well, the nice thing is literally exposure to Amanda Rice is getting that in a bodily. It is just wonderful to be around you because you continue to be such a positive force. We all face daily struggles or setbacks or moments of questioning ourselves or even just staying positive. For those that are seeking maybe guidance from you because you've had so much of that, is there any part of your process or some bits of advice that you can share to remain positive? Because you seem very naturally positive, but you were given so much that you could really kind of change course and direction. But was there anything that helped you remain positive? You have to
1: reach that eureka moment.
0: And I hope people reach it before illness
1: sets in we don't have control over everything whether we make all these decisions and have all these plans life happens and you need to i think as soon as you come to terms with you're not in control of everything the better and the happier you will probably be so for me i think i had to i had to give it up i had to give it up i had to just understand that life is throwing me things that I was not going to be in control of and I would never find an answer to. And now I almost turn it around and use it to my benefit. Every day I wake up, okay, what's going to happen today? And I'm actually gonna, I'm going to extract energy from that and positivity from that. And I can make those decisions. So I get on the New York City subway and instead of being, trust me, I have those days where I am Somebody's up in my business, somebody's pushing up on me, and I'm pissed off about it. But most days, I really try to be the person that doesn't get on that crowded train or gives my seat to someone or brings my puppy on the train. And if somebody's looking at them longingly, I make sure they pet my puppy, Nola.
0: But we truly do have one life to live. I had one guest who said something on the show, and it just kind of stuck with me. Sarah Piampiano wonderful triathlete person motivator she said one thing that said you can only control what you can control and everything else it is what it is but control what you can control and for you you control such positivity when things could be stacked up against you and i i've learned so much from just hearing about you i mean literally the the legend of amanda rice goes nationwide and that has affected so many people so i thank you so much for sharing your story What is next for Amanda Rice? A nine-week-old puppy. So
1: that's going to be my next project, my next baby. Chick Mission has given, let's see, we just gave our 37th Hope Scholarship. So Chick Mission, we just raised a lot of money at our second annual gala. We're going to keep fundraising, keep educating We are going to expand into Colorado, expand into Texas, try to, along with those other great groups, influence legislative change there, build on the momentum, and hopefully at some point, all 50 states will pass laws that mandate insurance companies cover this. And then we can have a very, very fun and festive, maybe dress up, going at a business sale party. But me personally, I am, I'm not gonna make a lot of long-term plans. I, I did that in my entire 20s and 30s. And life hands you a lot of twists and turns. So I'm gonna focus on being happy and being fulfilled. And we just had our first chick mission baby that was born from one of our hope scholarships. So that is just insane. That's baby Liam. And he was born in September. And hopefully a lot more babies will be born. And I can be Auntie Ricey like I am for many others.
0: Amazing. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for sharing your beautiful story. Where can people find out more about you and Chick Mission? So we're
1: at Chick Mission on Instagram, no spaces. And we have a website, www.chickmission.org. Or you can go to thechickmission.org. I bought them all. (laughs) <laughs> we love helping patients all over the country. We've we've done a lot of research on different scholarships that are out there, different grants. So if people send a note to the email address on our website, we'll try to point you in the right direction until we get there ourselves. And also if somebody has an idea for an educational event, we're open to that. We've got access to great fertility specialists and oncologists And other than that,
0: I don't know, stay tuned. Thank you so much.